Make yourselves comfortable. It's good to see you this morning. <clears throat> if I haven't met you yet, I look forward to it. Love to meet you after the service. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors of Legacy. I'm the teaching pastor. I'm excited to and honored to get to speak to you today. Um, so if you have a Bible, the passage that's going to do quite a bit of work for us, I feel like today is going to be in Acts. So turn to Acts 17, um, and we will get there here in just a minute or two. Um, we're going to do something a little bit different today. You know, I've, I've said this for about a year now, but I've always felt that 1969 and 1970 have been very pivotal years in our country's history, but I've also felt that 2016 and 2017 are kind of the new 1969 and 1970. I think we're in the middle of something very similar to what we saw in the late 60s and the early 70s. 1969 in particular, right? Some of you are history buffs. You know that that was a year that was kind of pregnant with all kinds of very real things. It felt like every month there was something new happening, something very important happening. That's, that is the year um, that Apollo 11 landed on the moon and Neil Armstrong took one small step for mankind or for man, but a large step for mankind. That happened that year. Vietnam was starting to draft some of our youngest and our brightest. That happened. Woodstock happened that year, right? Lots going on. Nixon elected. That was also the year, 1969, where two members of the Black Panthers were shot in the middle of the night by 14 police officers with the Chicago Police Department and instill what is considered today to be one of the more, I guess, controversial police raids in police history, at least in our country. It was also the same year that black students protested at Cornell and other universities in the Deep South, particularly North Carolina, over the admission of black faculty and the admission of black studies, which is something that wasn't even happening back in the time. And probably most importantly, on the greater scene is in Memphis, James Earl Ray pleads guilty to the assassination of Martin Luther King. A lot happened in 1969. You know, one thing that happened that kind of slipped under the radar that I think is probably very formative for where we are today, the, the beginning of Sesame Street, right? Sesame Street started in 1969 is a pretty big deal because for the very, very first time, we were able to see what an integrated urban block looked like on TV, right? I mean, you remember Gordon? Raise your hand if you remember Gordon. Gordon taught me how to count, straight up. I'm not gonna lie. I'm, 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 not, a, I'm not against our school system, but Sesame Street taught me how to count. Remember Maria, the Puerto Rican? She wasn't white either, right? It's the first time we saw an integrated urban city center where there was no chaos and no racism. It's a pretty big deal. It's the first time. They did something crazy in showing that there could be people who are not white be on a playing field that was very level. And this was a lot for people to handle at the time. I mean, I was too little to understand that not only were people walking on the moon, but there was a, a giant leap when it came to racial reconciliation. 
You see, the Mississippi Commission for Educational TV that very same year banned Sesame Street because it didn't feel like the people of Mississippi were ready to see that type of integration. You see, the producers of the show, the main two producers, when you look into the history of Sesame Street, they had the main goal as to show kids what integration really could look like. Not as what we see today, but what it could look like, what it should look like, and definitely what they hoped it would look like. So they built it. They wanted kids to see that integration was normal and beautiful. Not something odd or weird, but something that was very gorgeous, something that was very helpful. And I think this is awesome that they did that. I really think the church should have done it first, though. I think the church should have beat them to it, but in 1969, the church was largely silent. I hope we're not making the same mistake today, 2016, 2017. I kind of fear sometimes that we are. So what I'd like to do is detour from our work in Abraham. If you've not been coming, we've taken the summer to look at the life of Abraham, mostly through about 10 select chapters in Genesis, and we've only got one left, to be honest with you. We're about to tie a bow on that whole series, but our national discussion on reconciliation is really at a fever pitch, and I just don't know that it's wise to do business as usual right now, especially in a season where some of the more heavy and weighty voices in our culture They're being kind of vague, or they're being very silent, and I just don't want to be. I don't want to be. So this topic of racial reconciliation, it's going to come and it's going to go for most of Knoxville, depending on the news cycle, right? And that's just kind of how it happens. I mean, Charlotte happens to be our current doorway into this thing that we call racial reconciliation. it's, It's how we're seeing it now, but before then, it was kind of quiet, unless it was Charleston or Dallas Ferguson or Sanford, Florida, where I think a lot of it probably started. But it is a topic that even though it will go away for predominantly white church, it will not go away for the 24.9% of Knoxville that is not white. I don't think it goes away there. I think it's an issue that sticks. I also think this happens to be a topic that is very difficult for a predominantly white church to get their arms around. Because I don't know if, if I'm alone But sometimes it can be difficult even speaking on this level, using complete sentences and words, because you're fearful, maybe, that you're going to offend somebody in the room on accident. Like, I don't even really know what to say, Luke. I don't even know what words to put together, how to form thoughts. Maybe I could talk to someone that looks like me, sounds like me, grew up where I grew up, but I can't talk to someone that doesn't look like me about this because I just know I'm going to offend them. And so we just end up being silent. Add to the confusion of what I'm talking about, add to the confusion the fact that there's a lot of new players on the chessboard now that weren't there in the 60s. You have the alt-right, the alt-left, Antifa. You have, you have this interesting thing where now even with the new activist groups, you have infighting and now new splinters off of that. Can't even keep up. I can't even keep up. It's moving at a blinding speed. I was reading an article the other day over this rift that is beginning to repair between the NAACP and the Black Lives Matters movement. Because I think when Black Lives Matter came about, some of their message was being lost even on the NAACP. And of course the NAACP kind of looked like they were yesterday's movement to Black Lives Matter. And it's only now that they're starting to kind of try to knit the fabric of those two organizations together. I thought that was interesting to me. It's just something I just didn't know anything about. Again, I just don't think today's a good day to be vague or a good day to be silent, and I really don't think today's a good day to presume that everyone has a good, functional, working theology on racism. 
to just presume that, that we have a good working theology on skin color and diversity and equality. And a good working theology on this is important for the church, but can I just be honest? It's imperative for this church. We are in the South. It is imperative for the Southern church. So today I hope to speak plainly. And if you feel the need to ask a question or give a comment, if you think that I'm pulling punches or throwing punches in the wrong direction, we'll have a number up on the screen. You could text this with your questions. You could also email us at info at legacyknoxville.com because we would like to help you as a church. I'd like to turn it into a discussion or a dialogue wherever we need to. But what I'd like to do today is just define what is a win for our church and what I think a win should be for any church in the South, by the way, not just legacy. But what is a win? What does a score look like? Where do we get that from the Bible? And what does that mean for us individually? That's kind of the big things I'd like to hit because what legacy was yesterday is not going to work tomorrow. Not if we genuinely want to reach and help and serve and die for a city, a beautiful city that we're in. We're going to have to change. We're going to have to change. Martin Luther King, he scribbled some thoughts on some napkins when he was in a jail cell in Birmingham which later became a letter from a Birmingham jail. And this is something that I've been reading that as I've been reading it over and over again. This felt appropriate for us this morning. He says, there was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. But the judgment of God is upon the church today as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. And now it's the 21st century, and I couldn't agree any more than I would have agreed back then. I think he's right. But here's the thing that I know I'm going to bump into with a church this size and a city like this. This is going to feel like a very unnecessary topic for many of us in here. It is, right? I mean, after all, Charlottesville is 370 miles away, and it's already starting to feel like yesterday's viral news. That was last week's heartbreak. We're already starting to see space created between today and Charlottesville, and we are a predominantly white church, at least for now. But the point I'd like to prove is that there is a level of racism in every single person in this room, and it doesn't matter what color you are. That, I can already hear you bowing up. I can already sense it <laughs> from your, your inner person. Now, but hear me, if I was to, say, take racism out and put deceit in, and say something like there's deceit in the heart of every person in this church, we would probably say, yeah, I get that. I mean, I might not lie to people, but I do put on uh, maybe a facade to act like I'm not something or act like I am something. So yeah, I'd see that everybody's got deceit in this room. Or if I were to say lust, yeah, sure, Luke, I'm with you. Probably everybody is lusting over power or money or, or skin, lusting over something. What if I said pride or anxiety? I think these are things that we would all say, yeah, everybody in the room's probably got at least a sliver or a boulder in their life where they're really struggling with that. But as soon as a pastor says racism, not me, not it, not it, because my parents didn't raise me up to be a racist. I hear you. My parents didn't raise me up to be a racist either, but they didn't raise me up to be an activist either. Nor did they raise me up to have a good gospel confrontation for this thing that we call racism. I did not have a good working functional theology on what we're talking about. 
Not at all. You know, not hating another ethnicity is not the same thing as loving them. The statement of, I don't have a problem with you, is not the same thing as saying, I will fight for you and prefer you. I will out-honor you. I will lay my life down to build harmony between you and me. Those are two very different things to be said. In fact, I think the racism probably and typically runs a little bit more covertly than what we see on the news. What we see on the news is an overt form of racism. We see tiki torches and pepper spray and salutes. We see all these things, but, but covertly. Covertly, I think it runs in a lot of us. And we might take a deep breath because we watch the news, but we don't own a rebel flag, so it's not us. But could you too have a racism lurking deep inside of you? Because covert racism looks a little bit different. Covert racism looks a little bit like, hey, there's been integration codified in our law books today, so I don't know what the big deal is. I mean, people who are not white, they have every legal opportunity and every opportunity in society that whites do. It's the big deal. It's been a level playing ground for a long time. Covert racism is thinking that white privilege is a myth and that everyone is on an equal footing. Covert racism is being convinced that America is the elite and superior ethnicity and everything else is not. To believe that to be American is normal and everything else is just an ethnic disturbance, right? Without even considering the fact that to be an American is ethnic. America is an ethnicity. So when you take a hook a left whenever you leave this parking lot and you go down the street and you see the barbecue place and the burger place, that is ethnic food because we're an ethnicity like anyone else, but we don't even think on that level, do we? It's us and then everybody else. Watch it, watch it, it's subtle how it comes in. Covert racism is forgetting that anchor babies and refugees are people before they are issues. Because if we could keep those things issues, then they can be managed, they can be dealt with, and we could be critical with them. But as soon as that issue becomes a person with eyes and a heart and parents and a dream, then we're responsible. We're responsible for that. Sure, immigration, it's a national topic, but it's made up of immigrants too. Made up of people. And all of them have this image of God that's been stamped on them. So, what is a win when it comes to leading in diversity and racial reconciliation in Knoxville? What does it look like? Where are the goalposts? And I hope to lead us as a church to be a little bit more formative of a voice in this, a little bit more of an influential force in the city, and I regret that I have not covered as much ground as a pastor this year than I have in previous years. I haven't. I was much more influential in this little department of city reaching in the past than I have been in the more recent past, so I've had to repent and I've had to return, and my greatest shame is it's taken another city to blow up for me to really look at that with fresh eyes. All right. Now, Charlottesville, it will leave the news cycle, but racism, covert racism, it will not drop out of Knoxville as fast as that drops out of our news cycle. Therefore, this cannot be a sermon that just we pluck out of the, the, the archive and dust off every now and again whenever the need is dire, like a giving sermon or a money sermon. All right, here it is, folks, the money sermon because we're on tough times, so I'm going to guilt you into giving more. It can't be like that. This has to be more of a running dialogue. It becomes a formative part of our culture. 
So I'd like to spend a minute in a couple major passages because I'd like to convince you today through the Bible that humanity will find racial harmony. It will find racial harmony when we find ourselves anchored in three things, Adam, Jesus, and community, okay? Adam, our father, our original parent. Jesus, our hero, who undid what Adam did, and then authentic community, authentic community, okay? And what the world calls a win, I'm gonna say is not going far enough. And in fact, I would say where a lot of churches would even high five each other because of what they call a win, I'm still looking downfield from that. Okay, so let's look at Acts 17. I'll describe what I'm talking about. Acts 17 is gonna be the passage that helps us. And I'm gonna go to verse 24. And if you don't have a device and if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen. And this is Paul speaking to an elite class of a race that thought themselves to be elite. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though we needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, there it is, that's big for us, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So Paul is speaking to, I would say a covertly, maybe even an overtly racist people, right? Basically, everyone else that would show up was an ethnic disturbance. Everyone else was a barbarian. And as he's speaking to this covertly racist people, he's preaching that all mankind has the same source code, the same stock, the same beginning, the same fountainhead. All of us come from Adam, one man, many children, many nations, right? And of course, we all, most of us already knew that. I I didn't tell you anything you didn't know, very likely, right? Because we see this in Genesis. And what we also see in Genesis is the common genetics that run through our blood because we all come from Adam. It actually has inherent value to it. We're valuable. We're not valuable because we look valuable or we stand on valuable soil or our food is valuable or we do valuable things. We're valuable because we were created in the image of a very valuable God, stamped with his image. This is important because we have a lot of illegal immigrants that live in this zip code that we're in right now, lots, right? And it'd be easy for us to look at that and say they don't belong here. Before you're so quick to do, let me just say, they are God-formed people, God-considered people, God-breathed, God-loved. They're people. This feels so basic, doesn't it? It feels like I'm just taking you guys through a, a walk right through basic lane, through the basic passages to give a basic truth. It feels like nothing I've said so far would be revelatory, maybe even easy for you to check out at this point. Yet, Ninevites were ugly people to Jonah. And Peter had a hard time sitting down and eating with certain people groups just because of who they were. Turns out, this is not enough for a lot of people. And when we lose this singular piece of doctrinal truth, then value is not based on who God is and how we look in God. Value becomes based on two things primarily, and that is genetics and geography, biology and geography, what makes you look different, what makes you talk different, and the nation that you come from, right? And if you don't have God saying, this is what value looks like, then it's gonna be very easy for us to say, you don't look like me, I value me, you are devalued, you must go. 
or my nation's better than yours. We have a superior race, and you're not of it, so you're out. These are subtle forms of racism. I mean, did you catch on the news in Charlottesville, the Nazis marching and saying over and over and over again, blood and soil, blood and soil, blood and soil. That's a chant that goes back to Nazi Germany, by the way. What are they saying? They're basically spelling out what we find valuable is based on our genetics and where we come from. Because that's all we have left if we don't have the Lord. Now, I know as you're hearing that, you're thinking, but I'm nowhere near that. I've never, I don't have a tiki torch, right? I don't have flags hanging up. I would never say blood and soil over and over again, but, but could you think covertly for a moment? Have you ever thought to yourself or said to yourself or had somebody say to you, I don't hate those people as long as they stay over there? Okay, but it's not like a tornado or anything? <laughs> okay. An amber alert. Someone yell out who it is. Someone read it. Who's missing? Huh? But it is an amber alert? All right, let's pray for a minute. Father, we thank you, God, that you're in charge of all things, Father, and your eyes are, are looking across all of humanity and the earth, and we just pray for this child who's been abducted. We pray, Father, that you would bring to quick safety. Lord, that you would find some way to rescue this child. You'd find some way, Lord, to bring it to a peaceable end. And God, that you would be glorified in all of it, but that this child would be saved, this child would be rescued and brought back home safely. Lord, we love you. We know that you do these things. We know that you enjoy these things. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, this is an important plank in our doctrine against racism, being anchored in Adam. But I need to say, it is not really the, the score, the win. It's a step. But it can't be where we stop as a church, right? You've seen on the news a ton of journalists, a ton of news anchors. They all kind of lean into and nuance this idea that we're all created equal. We should be nicer to each other because we're all created equal. But listen, they're not borrowing that from Genesis. <laughs> they're not picking, you're not seeing any of them pull the Bible out of their bag and open it up right there on CNN. That's not what they're doing. They're actually appealing to the Declaration of Independence. That's why you're hearing it in that kind of language. This is what it says in the Declaration. We'll put it up on the screen if we can. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. There you have it right there. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you see the pundits say, see, there it is. It says it in the Declaration. Our forefathers wrote that, which means it is truth. There it is. There it says it. You need to care. You need to believe it. Why? because it's in the Declaration of Independence. So you gotta care about that, but that's where they have to stop. They don't go any further, it stops there. And do you care? You see, the Declaration of Independence is not a strong enough document to turn a racist into a not racist. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think a lot of the racists care that that's in the Declaration of Independence. It's just not that powerful of a document. It just can't convert. The only thing that can convert a racist is Jesus. And being rooted in Jesus is one step further than just being rooted in Adam. Let's look in Galatians 3. If you're quick, you can turn to it, and it would be helpful. If you're not so quick, then just 
relax, I'll read it to you, and we'll put it up on the, on the screen. Galatians 3, there's a very important passage in here. In verse 26 of chapter 3, Paul is telling another church, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all alone, or you're all one in Christ Jesus. Okay? If you were to flip one page over, maybe two pages over to your right, you'll find Ephesians 2. I'm just going to drop in and drop out of that. Ephesians 2, verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For, though, for through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is what we're hearing Paul say in two different, two different moments, basically to two different churches. He's saying that all categories that you entered into the cross moment with are now subservient to your new category, your new identity, which is Christian, Christian first. Whatever culture you were, whatever ethnicity that you were, you have a new marker on your life in which all other markers serve underneath, and that is Christian. Christian. You see, the gospel doesn't destroy culture. It doesn't just make us all homogenous. It actually redeems culture. What the gospel does is it will take the broken pieces and chunks of our culture, and it will turn it upside down. So even our cultures are much more beautiful than they are now, which is good news for me, because listen, we live in Marble City right now. This is Marble City, right? We are in the most ethnically diverse voting precinct in East Tennessee, all the way from Nashville to North Carolina. This is it. Drive down the road and you can see it. Some really good food. First thing you'll see on your ride is Holy Land Cafe. They've got some chicken shawarma that will change your life. It's a spiritual experience, right? <laughs> it's good stuff. Right next door to it, right next door is the Ethiopian place, which I'm way too frightened to eat at, right? <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard that food is spicy. I can't even do taco seasoning without losing control, so I, I probably can just drink water in there, and that's about it. Then you got a couple little places that we're all used to, our ethnic food. Right? you got a burger place, you got a, a barbecue place, and then you have, now catch this, me and my son were joking about this this morning, you have an Indian-Italian place, you have an Indian pizza place. I don't know how they do that, and I don't care, I'm sure it's awesome, however they decide to put those two together. The gospel does not smash all the beauty out of culture, it just takes the broken pieces and it redeems it, so that we look beautiful as a people together. So what does the gospel crush? What does it change? And just to answer that, I want you to imagine a tree, a big tree with big limbs that kind of touch big branches, with smaller branches, and then fruit hanging off the tree. And I want you to imagine the fruit being big fruit, so big it kind of bends the branch down. You could just kind of reach up and grab it. And every time you do, the limb goes up a good two inches because that fruit was so heavy, right? For our cases today, that fruit, tiki torches, chants, bonfires, People throwing stuff, looting, punches, right hooks, pepper, anything. That is the fruit, okay? 
Now, what happens whenever we just try to get rid of the fruit? Hey, that's ugly fruit. Well, as mankind, we could build legislation, right? No more marches. That'll take care of some of it, right? No more marches. And if you're, get, if you're caught with pepper spray, you're going to jail. We could do things that cut the fruit out. But just new fruit will grow. Why? Because we haven't changed what's behind the fruit, right? What is behind the fruit? What is behind a march and a torch and a chant? What is behind that? Hate? I mean, I, I would just suggest maybe hate would be the first thing, that, a frustration and, and anger, right? And then what's behind that? And then what's behind that? And what's behind that? And I think when you get down to the stump and the roots of what racism is, I think cosmically you just get down to mankind's insecurity before God. Racism comes from a radical cosmic insecurity. You see, racism is ultimately a gospel fracture. It is the firm unbelief that we are totally loved and totally valued by God. So in order to secure that value, love, and approval, we have to smash people around us. Because if they go down, that must mean that we go up. That is, that is essentially what is behind racism. And if we're going to smash other people to elevate ourselves, the best place to start, biography, geography. Or bio, biology and geography. What makes them different and where they live. I don't like your food. I don't like the way you sound. I don't like the way you look. I like me better. I want you down. I want to stay up. If I am right and correct, then that makes you wrong and evil. That's why the ultimate skinhead problem is not crappy parents or a bad educational system. It's this hunt, this unquenched hunt for approval and significance and love. When a skinhead can't find that, they will bring others to their knees in order to provide it for themselves and manufacture it. It's the ultimate Southern problem too, right? Securing our approval, it means getting others disapproved. Think back to the first murder fratricide, right? Cain and Abel. What was going on there? Abel was what? Approved, loved, and valued by God. Cain, not so much. Now, Cain had opportunities. You go back and read the Genesis account, he had opportunities. But instead, instead of finding his security and his approval in God, he smashes his brother so that he could be elevated. No more competition. No more good condemning him around him. You see, this is, this is the root under the stump. We don't believe that the cross brings us approval. Therefore, the fruit looks like pepper spray, right? But Jesus is the living, dying, and living again God-man hero that proves by his triumph over sin and over death and over destruction that you are valuable, that his kids are valuable. And you need not smash others because Jesus was smashed on the cross to provide that value for us. Not just anchored in Adam anymore, but anchored in Christ, a new Adam. But how do we measure something like that? This, is, <clears throat> this has been troublesome for a lot of people. How do we measure the gospel winning in that category? I mean, immediately we would look at, at, a, at a gathering, a room this size, and say it'd have to be here, right? The gathering would need to look like a rainbow. Then we know we're winning. Then we know that we're doing really well. I just don't think so. I'm just not convinced of that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love some texture in here. You know what I'm saying? But I just don't think that's a, I think that's a step. I don't think it's a score. I've got my eyes further downfield. Because consider, if we were to put a committee together and write out on paper what a perfectly diverse congregation would look like on Sunday morning, maybe get four or five of you. Of course, you would have to be diverse too, right? 
to be fair. We put you all around the table, everyone has a pen. I can see it. we're only gonna have 25% white people, 25% that are black, 25% that are brown, 25% that are Asian, and when our math catches up, 25% that are just a mix of people. Of course, half of us have to be impoverished, and the other half need to make pretty good money. Half of us need to be younger than 30, half of us had to be older than 30. I could just see us trying to mix it up and build something. And listen, what we built, if we were to do that and actually get it, it would be something to see, wouldn't it? You would walk in and go, whoa, this looks different. This is crazy. But I don't think it would be the win. I've got a good friend who's a pastor in Raleigh. His name is Jerome Gay, and he has written and done a lot of speaking and leadership development in this area, especially for pastors. And he taught me that a richly diverse gathering is not the answer. It's no win if everyone goes back to their own puddles and pockets after Sunday is over and church is done. I mean, think about it. We integrate and we desegregate in order to do this, but then if we just segregate all over again whenever this is done, how is that a win? I mean, how on earth is that a win? right? All that we've done is just show the world that we could worship together, but definitely not do life together. I'm just a bit bored with that. You should be bored with that. Diversity in this room can't be a win if diversity ends in this room. It's very simple, right? In fact, I think this would be what I would call a pseudo-diversity. To explain what a pseudo-diversity could do in your heart, I want you to imagine those times where like a celebrity athlete becomes a Christian or an actor, an actress, or musician becomes a Christian. You always see the same thing. It's whatever pastor of the month, they bring them up in front of the congregation, they hand them a microphone and tell them to give their story, right? And I know what it does in the hearts of the people that are listening. They're excited for the new life on stage, sure, but isn't there a piece of us that says, wait, they're pretty cool? They're pretty, I mean, they're not a loser. They're not a moron, and they're a Christian now. I mean, that makes me feel kind of, makes me feel kind of better about myself. I, I thought I was on a winning team. I mean, I, I didn't think we were losers. I could relax a little bit now, feeling a little bit better about myself. The thing is, we could do the same thing when we paint a rainbow in this room. We could bring our friends in. Hey, I go to the diverse church. It's really cool. It could be equally tempting to say, see, I'm a part of the solution. I'm not a part of the problem. I knew I wasn't a racist. I can relax, all right? What if our goalposts were moved, though, from not just a colorful, ethnically beautiful display in this room, but a colorful, beautiful display out of this room? Not just gathered, but scattered on mission in living rooms, across tables. I think that's a little bit closer. What if our wind looked like authentic community? Look at Matthew 28. <clears throat> Matthew 28, which will be up on the screen as well. This is what everyone knows is the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. Okay, just before we go any further, all nations, disciples of all nations. That's ethne in the Greek, it's ethnicity, all different people groups. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We see something very beautiful in the Great Commission as it's displayed before us. But what it shows us is that the church is made up of different tribes, and tongues, and people groups, and sides of town, and languages. And this collection that is built by Jesus' blood is an eclectic collection. We see a dinner table. 
with our king hero at the head and we are all family members sitting at the same table. Not just gathering together, not just standing shoulder to shoulder, but eating, communing, enjoying each other. Once we were made up of various categories and now we have a common family line. See, Romans 10, <clears throat> forgive me, Romans 12, verse 10 says this. Paul says to the church, love one another with brotherly affection. I always think dining room table when I, when I hear words like that. Close proximity. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. A racist cannot do this. This is impossible for the racist to outdo someone that does not look like them. You see, that's why I love communion so much. Communion, which we'll take as soon as I'm done preaching. When we take it, we join millions of other Christians all over the world. I mean, time zones being what they are. We're taking a meal at the same time, emblematic of our hero king who has bled out and broken himself on a cross for our provision. And we are taking it with different people that speak languages we'll, we'll never hear. And it's so cool to think of it that way. And it's also so cool to know that that's a foretaste of where we're going. You see, there is this story, and we're not going to turn there. There's this story of Peter being up on a housetop and having a dream. And God is showing him this vision, really, more than a dream. He's showing him this vision where he is being challenged to take part in something he felt to be unclean. So he says, I can't do this, Lord. I can't eat those animals. They're unclean. And the Lord says, well, God has made clean. Don't call common. I've made this. It's clean. Don't call it common. And it sounds a little sideways. I mean, when you just read it, if the story were to stop there, you'd think, well, okay, I guess God's changing dietary laws. I don't really know what he's after right now. I guess that makes sense. But what God is doing, he's preparing Peter's heart for a time where he will be in a living room where people are not like him. When you skip down maybe 10 or 12 verses, you see Peter saying to that living room full of people not like Peter, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any other person common or unclean. You see, before that time, those people were ethnic disturbances to him. He was the normal. They were the aberration. His group was better. That group was deficient. And there was racism, overtly and covertly. So then Peter opens his mouth and says, I understand. Now I, now I get it. God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then Peter goes on to preach the gospel. They all get radically saved. The Holy Spirit falls on the place. There's baptisms. Very cool story. One of my favorite parts of that story, it's in a living room, not in a church sanctuary. It's in a living room. This cool thing happens. Close quarters. A little too close for comfort. So the win for us is not bringing ethnicities together in here. That's a step. It's actually seeing diversity in homes. It's actually seeing diversity on mission, downtown, at the game, watching our kids play at the same playground together, marrying each other, having our kids marry each other, and that not be some unique thing anymore, some interesting thing that happens. Not just having white parents foster or adopt kids that are not white, but actually having people that are not white, the 24.9% adopting and fostering those who are white. Having DNA moments where we're sharing our life and we're accountable to someone that just doesn't look like us, might not understand everything we're going through. That's a little closer to the win. But this means building in each other and investing in each other and outdoing each other in honor. It's pretty much what that means. 
You know, one of the biggest points of sadness for me is that with all the great coaching I've had as a pastor and all of the pastoring I've had from other pastors, they've all been white. <clears throat> Unless I dial up a, a black preacher on a podcast that doesn't even know who I am, right? I could feel it. I could feel a deficiency in how I see the Bible, how I see the city, how I see people. I have to resource that 24.9 because I need to be built up and deployed by people that don't look like me, and I have a feeling you're just like that. So I hope you see a difference. A rich Sunday morning is a start. It's not the score. And listen, we've had people leave Legacy Church over the last few years because our Sunday morning wasn't rich enough in skin color, also known as we are not black enough. Heard that a lot of times. And whenever I hear that as a pastor, I go through turmoil inside because I'm thinking, man, that's an indictment. I mean, is it an indictment? I'm not so sure. Is that fair to put on us? I mean, is that, is, we're a young church. Is that, is that right that they would say that? Maybe they're copping out. Maybe they're leaving for other reasons and they're just going to throw the race card out there to make it easy and feel good. Maybe they're right. Are we doing a good enough job building a hospitable environment where just not only whites but those who are not white enjoy their time here, can be relaxed here? I go through all of this turmoil. But one question I do ask is how many people have you had over to your house that don't look like you? while you're leaving. While you're leaving, how many people have you had sit across your dining room where your kids watch you have awkward conversations with people that don't look like you? Because it's not my job to pump this room full of people that don't look like you to make you feel better about yourself through some pseudo-diversity. Not my job. Matthew 28 is just as much your passage as it is mine. You are called to make disciples of all ethnos, you are called to make disciples. You are called to have living room moments. The win is a housekeeper living in Lincoln Park, discipling a homeschool mom in Bearden. Who makes more money? A win is a CEO that lives on Gay Street being discipled and receiving pastoral insight from someone that lives right off of MLK and probably might not even have a job. That's a win. A win is our kids seeing interracial marriage as the norm, something that's just totally normal. A win is us as a church training and deploying non-white leaders who will in fact help us build in a city, help the city, and turn around and help us, train us, and deploy us as a predominantly white church. That's the win. And I, can I just be honest for a moment? A big win of mine a big hope of mine is it some way down the road, whether it's 5, 10, 15, 20 years, I don't know, but that my replacement on this stage is not white. That's what I pray for. Like a dad praying for their kid's future spouse, I pray for this church's future pastor. It's a responsible thing to do, and you parents, you understand that. If you're not parents yet, you will understand that praying for what's not in front of you and what might feel like forever away, but you know is coming. I pray that the next lead pastor of this church can carry this church so much further than I ever could. But I'll tell you what I hope inside. I hope that they're not white. I don't know. Maybe they're a seven-year-old black boy that is in the Haslam Boys and Girls Club. Maybe they have brown skin and can come from anywhere and they don't even live here yet. Maybe they become a Christian on the campus. I don't know. Maybe campus outreach finds them, 
disciples them, nurtures them. Maybe they come on staff after that and they work on the campus. Maybe, maybe I make enough money because this church is going, well, I could hire them away from campus outreach and make them an associate pastor at Legacy Church. Maybe I could mentor and pour my life into them and then maybe I could just get out of the way and just love and serve. That's what I hope for. Do you see, this is, this is spiritual warfare we're talking about, isn't it? I mean, this is just different. You realize if we build something like this, people will leave. People won't come. It's just too much work. This is not just mission, it's spiritual warfare. Every time you share a meal with somebody that doesn't look like you, you're telling the enemy your head is being squashed because of what Jesus has done and look what I get to do because of what Jesus has done. Those are the statements we're making. We're declaring war. I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand with me. I need to finish. I've gone way too long. <clears throat> go ahead and stand with me. But I do want to challenge you before we just go into music and go into communion. And because we have some guests here, I'd like to just say communion is something that we reserve for the church of God. Whether you're a partner here or not, we invite you to take it. But if you're not a Christian and you're just a skeptic or you're searching or you're just kind of traveling through here, communion is something that we reserve for the church. We just invite you to take Jesus instead. Right? But I just want to speak to all of the racists in the room. Everyone that has racism in their heart, okay? Not hating is not the same thing as loving. And not being a skinhead is just a bar way too low. Ask your heart the questions. Whenever you hear of a shooting, a police shooting, do you already form a judgment in your heart whenever you hear about what the races are? You'll know because if you swap the races, it might change how you feel. How does that, how do you navigate that? Do you see other ethnicities and skin colors having it not so bad and needing to just appreciate what they have? You might be covertly racist. When your kids talk about bringing home the boyfriend and their girlfriend, right, do you secretly pray and hope that they're the right color? <laughs> these are things, these are litmus tests that we have to think about. And have you tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed to develop deep friendships with people that do not look like you? Could you be grooming a covert racism without even knowing it? Without even dealing with it? So we're about to move to worship and move to the table where wine and bread celebrate a better Adam coming to free us from what the first Adam doomed us to. And I'm going to ask you to consider doing two things. One is repent and seek the Holy Spirit for change in your heart because that's the only way it's going to happen. Seek the Holy Spirit to change your heart. The second thing, help me build a better church. Help me. Help me build a church that is helpful to the city. Building living rooms that are beautiful and to hold me accountable to deploy a leadership that is beautiful. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your very, very sweet words to us. Not not that you make us different just because you give us an extra label, but you tie us to you and you give us a new bloodline, a bloodline I share with people that I don't even understand what they're saying and I can't eat their food and people that I, all over the world, I share a bloodline with them. And Father, give us a conviction as a church not to just gather together and then pat ourselves on the back but to drive even this moment into other moments where we are life on life, life on life, that we could actually show this city 
something that's not boring, something that's actually worth looking at, and something that is more revealing of the beauty of your gospel. Yes, we want this room to be diverse. Yes, that is a first step, Lord, and we do pray for that. But Father, we, we have expectations for so much more than that. And only your spirit can do something, can provoke something like this. Only you can give revivals. Only you can change hearts. Only you move those kinds of boulders. So we just pray that you do that. But Lord, I know what I'm asking, and I know that that means you defeating the racist in me and the racist in all of us as we sit here. We each have it to different degrees. Lord, that we would ask ourselves hard questions and we would come to grips with who we are and that we would repent, change. And Father, that we need your Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out or it won't happen. You're so good to us. You truly are the hero of a much better story than one that we could create. Father, thank you so much for being a second Adam to come and undo what was done. Thank you so much that as you call us to repentance, it's a kindness to us. You're kindly drawing us to yourself. So Lord, as we sing and as we take the elements, we do so to celebrate you and your kindness to us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.
Amen. Hey, uh, just a couple quick announcements. Is Kevin in here? Kevin Gentry? Where's Kevin? Oh, come on up, Kevin. Sorry, I didn't even see Kevin there standing there. Kevin's going to introduce us to, to something he wants to, wants to share with us this morning, so I'm going to let him get after it. Oh, okay. All right. Um, I'm Kevin, um, if, you, if you don't know me, um, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I just wanted to talk to you for just a few minutes about something uh, that's kind of new. Um, and, and coming off of this sermon that was uh, beautifully uh, just opening the word to us by uh, Luke, man, that, that's really going to help me with this. Um, that was a helpful sermon. That was really a blessing um, to me, and I, I'm sure it was to all of us. But um, our mission as a church uh, to the city is to lead people to enjoy Jesus, to lead people to enjoy his gospel, and to do that in community. And so, now we, we've got a lot of, uh, of neat things happening in our church that we're growing in that. I'll just say that. We've got leaders on campus through campus outreach. Uh, we've got uh, communities, and you've seen uh, several of them coming up in the past few weeks talking about the innovative and creative ways that they are going on mission to the city, just taking the good news of Jesus with uh, the word on their lips and with their lives. And so what I wanted to talk to you this morning is just a new, uh, I think, exciting way. You may think it's exciting. You may not. But uh, of taking the good news of Jesus to the city. And it's through the avenue of visual art. Now, you might be an artist sitting in here, or you might know someone, because you may not be. Uh, and I don't, when I say artist, I don't want you to picture just the, um, you know, the, the typical guy with the little curly mustache, you know, and, the, and, the, and the, the beret that's like off to the side, you know, and he's holding the, or maybe you're picturing Bob Ross, I don't know, but, and they're just painting away, and he's awesome too, by the way, I, I'm not a hater, but, well, was awesome, but anyway, they, they're painting away, okay, that's great. But there are a lot of different kinds of visual art, especially in this day and age. You may be a photographer. You may be a, uh, a videographer. You may paint. You may use ceramics. You may, I mean, the list goes on and on. So it's a, it's a really broad thing. So just have that in mind when I'm talking to you. What we want to do, we've had a couple, we've tried this, and we've had a little bit, a couple of false starts. But, you know, I'll be honest with you. We really can't get this out of our soul. I can't get it out of my soul. One of the beautiful things that Jesus has done when he saved us is he's redeemed our work and made it worth something. He did that, regardless of what your work is. I don't care what it is. It may have nothing to do with art. He's done that. And so as we're living together in community with each other and the world is watching, our work should be different. It should be for, it's motivated differently, and it looks different. It's, it has a different purpose. And that's no less true for the artist, which is work, than any other kind of work. So if you are that person, you're out there, and you, you, you're an artist, maybe you think it doesn't matter uh, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you do think it's ma it matters, but you don't know how to connect with community and do it with other people. 
then I'm inviting you. And I'm going to be out front in the foyer, and I'd like you to talk to me. What we're going to do is build a community of artists, and we're doing it already. Okay, I've already got my daughter, by the way, and Salem Plog is with us, and, and there's some others who's, who've expressed interest. But what we want to do is build a community of artists who work with the understanding that you become better at your work when you do it together than when you do it alone. You, you just do. And when you serve, when we serve the city together, they get a clearer picture of God's family being God's family through, through the avenue of work, and in this case, art, than they do when you're alone. They just do. Luke did a beautiful job of showing that to us from the Word of God this morning. And so... I think this is exciting. This may be exciting to you. If it is, I want you to talk to me, and I can give you a lot more details. Um, I can give you more information about that. So uh, thank you for listening. I just wanted to share that, that with you. Appreciate it, Kevin. Um, yeah, so talk to Kevin. You're going to be in the foyer, correct, Kevin? Okay, he'll be out there. Um, <clears throat> if you guys are interested in the next connection point uh, for Legacy Church, that's our comm groups, Communities on Mission. Luke just did, as Kevin said, a beautiful job of explaining how we do community and life here at Legacy. So if you'd like some more information on that, Nick and Emily are going to be at the map in the foyer, the big gray map that has all of our comm groups on it. They'd love to meet you, answer any questions you might have about your next connection. Um, if it is your first, second, or third time maybe uh, visiting, if you could fill out a connection card and we're going to get in contact with you. I know that I've got, I've got four numbers I need to dial this week, so if you're one of those numbers, I apologize for not getting back to you. Um, quickly. So I will be calling you this week. And if you haven't filled one of those out, I'd love for you to fill one of those out. And I'd love to meet you and talk to you. Um, the next thing real quick, something we're going to do as a church this year um, is we are, we are partnering with a local nonprofit called Feeding the Orphans. Does anybody in here know about Feeding the Orphans, heard of Feeding the Orphans? Okay. Yeah. So um, we are going to partner with those guys in the sense of they do a campaign every year called Feeding the Frock. Has anybody heard of feeding, or forget the frock, not feeding the frock, forget the frock. Has anybody heard about this? Okay, this is a, Roger's actually wearing a t-shirt, I just noticed that, man, forget the frock, right there. So this campaign is an Easter campaign, and I'll just give you a brief overview of what it is. We've shared the information on our Facebook page, you can go watch a video about these guys, um, what they do, and one of their, one of their arms is they, they, they do this t-shirt um, fundraiser where um, it's kind of cool, they're, 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 um, they're partnered with a t-shirt manufacturer in Haiti that these guys are orphans that have aged out of the system, and their job is to make these T-shirts. And then we turn around, Feeding the Orphans turns around and sells those T-shirts, and the proceeds go to Feeding Orphans in Africa. And so the idea is, instead of going out and spending your cash on some cool dresses and new, new kicks and things like that, it's to buy one of these T-shirts and, and rock that on Easter. So that's what we're going to be doing this year, hopefully as a church. Um, I know my family's ordered ours. Um, a couple other families. Roger's actually wearing one right now. So he's already ordered his. So there's a few of us that have already done this. So you go on our website, watch the video. Um, I'm sorry, go on our Facebook page, watch the video. It'll show you how to buy those things, get those here. Easter is April 16th, I believe. Is that correct? Okay, so I know there's a deadline on order. So go ahead and get that place. Goes to a great cause, and we'd love to support this local ministry. You can check them out, uh, Feeding the Orphans. They are right here locally in Knoxville. So Go watch that video. Let's pray, and we will get out of here. God, thank you for today. God, thank you for your word, um, the gifts that you've given Luke to communicate that word clearly. God, to us this morning, working through him and his words, God, we are thankful for that. God, we are thankful for 
um, people you've placed around us, kneecap to kneecap and close proximity, God, I ask that you would be with those relationships this week as we, as we um, go about our lives throughout the week, meeting with people, um, having tough conversations, God, getting in each other's lives. Um, we are thankful for the opportunity and the ability to do that. God, I pray for each and every person in here today that they would know you, um, God, on a, on a different level after leaving here today. That this text would make them see you, your son, your spirit, God, um, in such a more clear understanding, God, than they've known before. So, God, I ask for your spirit to come and empower us, God, as we, as we go out on mission this week, as we do, do life in community groups, as we do life in DNA groups, God, as we do life in our normal, everyday rhythms. I just pray, God, that you would be with us. God, just uh, come, rescue us, be with us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You guys have a great week.